Well, good morning again. If you've got a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to find the book of Colossians. Last week we started a new series in the book of Colossians and kind of introduced uh, the book and went through uh, verses 15 through 20 as kind of an introduction. In just a moment, we're going to backtrack a little bit and look at the first eight verses of Colossians chapter 1. Before we do that, I want to make a couple of announcements for you as a church family just to let you know about a couple of things. One of those is, how many of you in here feel like, you know what, I need to just, I don't feel like I know my Bible as well as I would like to. Anybody? I'd like to know my Bible better. I'd like to know more about what the Bible says about certain theological topics or things like that. Well, one of the, one of the things that I am, uh, have the privilege of being involved with is a program called the Sanford Ministry Training Institute. That name is a little bit interesting because it sounds like you need to be in ministry to go there, and that's not the case. It's all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ are called to minister the hope of the gospel. So all of us, in a certain sense, are ministers of the gospel. And this uh, program is a, is a, used to be called Samford Extension. It's been around for years and years and years within our state. Um, and it's been repackaged into a, a program called the Ministry Training Institute. The MTI is a series of eight-week classes. It's about 24 eight-week classes that we cycle uh, we do four a year uh, here in Morgan County, um, and uh, I've been involved in teaching with MTI for over seven years now, and I direct the local Morgan County Extension here, which meets at the uh, Morgan Baptist Association. And uh, so we have a new class that's coming up. Normally we have some little bulletin inserts that we send out or put in, uh, but right now we're trying to minimize uh, the passing of paper as much as possible, so we don't have any bulletin inserts to give you, but... I'll be starting a class a week from Tuesday on Baptist doctrines. We'll be looking at the Baptist faith and message, which is specifically kind of the, the covenant statement of Southern Baptist. And we'll be looking at what are some key Baptist doctrinal distinctives and, and how does that differ maybe from some other uh, denominations and our brothers and sisters in Christ about how we view things versus how they view things. So if you've ever wondered a little bit about what it means to be a Baptist or, or what we believe specifically that's different than other Christian denominations, it would be a great class to take. I know a number of people are still concerned about being in a small room, and normally we do these classes in uh, the, the Hacker Hall at the Morgan Baptist Association. But because of the COVID virus, uh, back in the spring we were able to tap into some uh, digital technology through Sanford University, which allows us to live stream these classes through a program called WebEx. So you can still participate in the class and do so from your own computer in your home if you don't feel comfortable right now attending in person. Um, and so you can register and do it both in person, WebEx, you can do it in person to start. And if you feel uncomfortable and want to join in via the, the WebEx, you can do that. Uh, but again, that class starts a week from Tuesday, and we would love to have any of you that would be in, love to be involved. Karen Chenault, one of our members, has been involved in a couple of classes. Um, Kevin Davenport, I think, has been in a couple of classes as well. Uh, Wayne Hawkins has taken one, I think. And so we would love to have you be a part of that. It's open to all of our, our brothers and sisters here in Morgan County. And uh, if you want more information about that, you can see me after church or email me or something. I'll tell you how to get hooked, hooked up with that. The other announcement I want to make to you is that we're going to be having a business meeting this coming Wednesday. I failed to mention that in the 9 o'clock service last week, and my apologies for that. Uh, we are going to be having a business meeting this coming Wednesday night here in our church uh, worship center. This is actually what would be our normally normal 
quarterly business meeting or quarterly scheduled business meeting. So in that sense, it's not necessarily a, a special called business meeting, but nothing's been normal for the last five months. And so nobody's been preparing to come to church for a business meeting for the last couple of months. Uh, but we will be having a business meeting. We'll give you a financial update on how the church is doing. And we also have two recommendations that the personnel committee will be bringing and we sent an email about those over the weekend so that you could have that and hopefully you are on our email system. If you have not gotten an email or if you go home and check and you did not receive one, please call the church office and let us know, number one, so we can add you to that system and make sure that we have the correct email address. Um, but we sent out some little biographies and recommendations for two uh, recommendations the personnel committee is going to be bringing. One is to bring a man named Michael Gentry to come and serve in an interim capacity as our minister of preschool and children. We've been going through the process ever since Ms. Debbie announced her retirement earlier this year. And that process was, faced a severe hurdle in, in the coronavirus situation where we were not able really to gather and know exactly what things were going to look like in the near future. And so we have had a conversation with Michael. Michael is a resident of Decatur, has lived here for over 20 years, served on staff both at First Baptist Decatur as well as Parker Memorial Church in Anniston. Um, he's a brother in Christ. He's been a good friend and, and of mine uh, through some mutual friendships that we've had over the last few years. Um, and he is in the process right now of, of job transition and looking for what God's next step for him is. And so Michael is, uh, we're going to ask him to come on board and help us in an interim capacity part-time uh, with, our, with our preschool and children's ministry. And so that recommendation is there. And as well as uh, our child care center committee and our, part of our personnel team have been interviewing candidates for our next director of the child care center. And they have a young lady that they would like to present to you on Wednesday night uh, named Janie Winsel. And her biography is here as well. So if you did not get an email uh, with that information, we do have printed copies available out in the foyer. And you can get those and take those home with you so that you can read over those. Um, if you cannot join us in person Wednesday night, which many of you are here now so you feel comfortable enough coming to church, you probably would feel comfortable enough coming to a business meeting. But if you cannot or you know of some people who don't feel comfortable coming but would like to join, we are making that available through uh, Zoom. And the reason why we're doing Zoom and not Facebook Live is because a church business meeting is a meeting of the members of the church, and we want to be very careful about broadcasting a church business meeting over Facebook Live, which is an open platform that can be accessed by anybody. Uh, we want to be sensitive to that. And so uh, we won't be showing it on Facebook Live or YouTube Live, um, but we do have a closed system called Zoom that uh, you can either download as an app or there will be, uh, on the invitation that is sent out, there will be a link to open it in a web browser where you don't have to download anything. It'll just open it up automatically for you. Um, and that will allow you to be able to watch the proceedings uh, and participate. And we will have a way for those who are watching via Zoom or cannot be here to be able to register their vote uh, electronically. So still trying to work through some of the nuances of doing business in the midst of a coronavirus situation. Uh, but if you'll help us get that word out, if you know somebody who, who doesn't really feel comfortable coming to church right now, but would at least like to be involved, 
Um, let them know that we have that available. There may be some who don't know how to download that program, and I'll be happy, uh, Ken or David would be happy to come and kind of help you get that set up on your computer or on your tablet if, if we could do that for you. Just let us know before 4 or 5 o'clock on Wednesday. It would be a little bit too late for us to come to your house and do something in. So please let us know ahead of time if you would like to join in that capacity. All right. Uh, so today we're going to be looking at, at uh, Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to begin kind of a deep dive into this short little letter from the Apostle Paul to the believers in the church there in the city of Colossae. Now last week we introduced this letter to you, and specifically we looked at five verses in chapter 1, which, which really are the most profound Christological passage in all of the Bible. It's one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture on the deity of Jesus Christ. And in verses 15 through 20 last week, we saw that Paul shows us that not only was Jesus Christ a rabbi from Nazareth, but Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who is sovereign over all creation and sovereign over the church. And so with that, that introductory thought embedded into our hearts, I want us to go backwards this morning a little bit and begin to look at the first eight verses of chapter 1. Now, it's interesting because there's two ways to approach the introductory section of the book of Colossians. Really, the first 14 chapters, verses 3 through 14, are a, a, a one prayer that Paul is, is talking to the Colossians about that he prays. Um, but today we're going to dissect this prayer a little bit. We're going to look at verses 3 through 8 this morning as kind of a statement of gratitude that Paul has. And then next week we're going to look at verses 9 through 14 and look at specifically the content of Paul's prayer that he prays for the believers there in Colossians. Um, but before we read today's text, I want to just say a quick word of reminder of the central themes of the book of Colossians that we introduced to you last week and which we will see woven throughout this letter. Now, if you want to take notes, there are some, some worship guides in the seat pockets in front of you, and the sermon notes are on the back, and so many of you like to fill those in. We introduced these themes last week extensively, so I won't speak long to them, uh, but I want to send them, put them out there as a reminder because you'll see one of those themes in the passage that we look at today. The first of those four themes that we see in the book of Colossians is the theme of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And what we mean by that is that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God and that He rules and reigns over all. That was Paul's central argument there in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1 that we looked at last week. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He is the image of the invisible God, and that He is the firstborn of all creation. And Paul even goes so far as to say that in all things Christ is to be preeminent or supreme. And so we see the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And we said that because Jesus is supreme, Jesus is just better than everything else. That, that you can't get any better than supreme. Supreme means the best of all. And because Jesus is supreme, He is better than all other human philosophies, all other religious traditions, anything else in all of creation. Jesus is just better. The second theme that we looked at is the theme of spiritual wisdom. And what we mean by that is that Paul makes the argument over and over again that we need revelatory wisdom from God more than human wisdom and reason. Over six times in the book of Colossians, Paul speaks of wisdom. And in almost every one of those cases, he is speaking about a specific revelatory wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. And he makes the argument because the, the, the church at Colossae is, is, is dealing with 
a growing false teaching in the church that is based upon Greek philosophical tradition. The Greeks were well known for their, for their love of wisdom. And, and, and Paul is making the case that, that human wisdom doesn't compare to spiritual wisdom and revelation. What we really need in life is not more knowledge. What we need is revelation from God. The third theme that we're going to look at is the theme of the centrality of the gospel. And what we mean by that is that the gospel is sufficient for salvation and the gospel is superior to all other messages. That the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is sufficient to save all people. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 116, that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is sufficient to save all people, and it is superior to all other messages. And Paul makes two specific arguments about the gospel, that the gospel is better than human tradition and that the gospel alone brings genuine transformation. It's this theme, and specifically the theme of transformation, that we're going to see in verses 1-8 through in just a moment. The final theme that we see in the book of Colossians is the theme of Christian maturity. And what we mean by that is that if Christ is in us, and if Jesus is better, if Jesus is superior to all other religious traditions and religious leaders and, and human philosophies, that if that Jesus who is preeminent, the firstborn of all creation, is in us, then it should be evidenced in our life eventually by true spiritual growth. It's impossible for the Spirit of God to reside inside of someone and it doesn't bring about maturity and transformation. We'll be looking at that theme in a few verses. Today I want us to look at verses 1 through 8 as Paul introduces this letter to us and gives us a statement of gratitude that he has to God for the believers in Colossae. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now this tells us that Paul and Timothy are co-authors of this letter, that Timothy is there in Rome with Paul, and that uh, he is serving alongside of Paul and encouraging Paul. And, and Timothy helps Paul, and, and Timothy was a companion of Paul, ministry compatriot, and, and so Timothy is there. The, the church at Colossae was probably familiar with the reputation of Timothy from his time in Ephesus with Paul. To the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, one of the first things that stands out, one of the first truths that stands out in the opening verses of Colossians is the importance of intercessory prayer. Paul begins this, this, this letter by telling us that he and Timothy have been regularly interceding for the believers in Colossae in prayer. And Verse 3, he says, we always thank God when we pray for you. And it's interesting because for Paul, prayer and praying for others was not just 
an occasional activity that took place on Wednesday night at a church prayer meeting or on Sunday morning before a Bible study class. You see, for Paul, prayer was as natural as breathing. The New Testament records many statements by the Apostle Paul about both his pattern of prayer as well as the content of his prayers. We see in just about every letter that Paul writes, Paul either says, I have been praying for you, or he says, I pray this for you. And what we understand by that is that Paul was a man of prayer. Paul understood the importance of prayer and specifically the importance of intercessory prayer, praying for other believers and brothers and sisters in Christ. Which brings to mind the question, how is, how is your prayer life lately? How's your prayer life going? And specifically, how is your intercessory prayer life going as you intercede for other people? Do you pray regularly for others by name and by specific request? Do you pray for others and, and pray for God to move in specific ways in their life? One of the most alarming and discouraging trends that I have noticed in our culture today is the casual way that we throw out the concept of prayer in our culture. Have you noticed this? It is common today, whether in a conversation or on social media, to hear or see this statement, hey, thoughts and prayers are with you. How often do you see that? It's, it's very common that I'll be surfing my Facebook feed and I will see somebody put up there, oh, you know, uh, pray for me. I went to the doctor today. I got a, I got a, I got a bad report. I got to have, I got to have a surgery coming up. And immediately there'll be thirty or forty comments underneath there that'll say, "Hey, pray for you. Prayers for you. Thoughts and prayers." We throw that out there. But my question is, when you say to someone that you are praying for them, do you actually pray for them, or do you just throw out thoughts and prayers because? You really don't know what else to say or do in that particular moment. It's just a way to kind of fill in the gap to say, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm concerned about it. I wish you well. My prayers are with you. But if your prayers are with somebody, do you ever actually stop what you are doing and go to the Heavenly Father and intercede verbally for that particular person for that particular request? It's a common thing that a lot of us do. I, I, I've noticed that tendency even in my own life. I've noticed a tendency when people are talking to me and they're telling me their story or they're seeing what's going on, or especially on something as impersonal as social media, to see somebody post something and to say, oh man, I, I, and even in the back of my mind to say, God, I hope you help that person, which is at least something, but then to scroll right past that and go on down and start reading a whole bunch of other things and then later on to realize that I never actually prayed for that person or for their need. This trend is so pervasive that even in uh, people who have never voiced a confession of Jesus Christ as Savior or never spoken of faith in God will say things such as thoughts and prayers are with you. Even people who are living some of the most vulgar and godless expressions in their lives will send out thoughts and prayers to others. But this is not the type of prayer that Paul demonstrates for us, and this is not the type of prayer that the Bible calls us to as followers of Jesus Christ. One of the greatest examples I've ever personally met of intercessory prayer is Craig Carlisle, the former pastor here of Central Park. Long before I became the pastor of Central Park, Craig and I became friends and 
like-minded partners in ministry. We had served on a number of different capacities in the State Board of Missions. And, and I remember specifically one time that, that Craig and I exchanged phone numbers and he sent me a text message and said, I want to get together and eat lunch with you. And we met in Silicaga for lunch. It was kind of halfway between the two of us at a little Italian restaurant in Silicaga. And we had lunch that day. And that day he said, would you mind if I added you to my prayer list? And I said, absolutely not, Craig. I would absolutely love your prayers. He said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to put your name on my prayer list. And every month on the 28th day of the month at 7 o'clock in the morning, I get a text from Craig Carlisle. And it says, hey, Matt, how can I pray for you today? And I usually send Craig a response of two or three things. And he immediately writes down a prayer on that, sends that to me. And I know that I have been prayed for every single month on the 28th day of the month for going on about five years now by Craig Carlisle. That's intentional intercessory prayer. And Craig doesn't just do that for me. In, in the conversations I've had with other ministry compatriots, Craig Carlisle prays for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pastors throughout our state and throughout our convention by name every single month. That's a wonderful example of intercessory prayer. And Paul not only mentions his prayer for the Colossians, but he mentions that his prayers are grounded in deep personal gratitude to God. He said, we always thank God when we pray for you. You see, whenever Paul began to speak to the Father about the Colossians, a, a, a feeling of gratitude and thanksgiving welled up in his heart when he remembered the reports that Epaphras had brought from him regarding how the gospel had been expressed in the city of Colossae and the spiritual fruit of the gospel that was being seen in the believers there. And this is why our sermon today is entitled gospel, Gratitude for Gospel Fruition. Because I want us to see specifically three fruits of the gospel that were expressed in the life of the church in Colossae and that I pray would be expressed in our lives here as well. So the fruits of the gospel truth in the life of of the church. The first of those fruits is the transformative power of gospel hope. The transformative power of gospel hope. Paul says in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. As we've already said, Paul's opening statement is a prayer of thanksgiving and gratitude to God for the believers in Colossae. And as he's writing this letter, he's doing so to combat the, the false teaching that has begun to infiltrate the lives of some of the believers. But Paul doesn't begin by combating false doctrine. Instead, he begins his letter by expressing gratitude for the evidences of spiritual life change that have already taken place in the church. As Paul sits down to write this letter to warn them of some of these false teachings, he remembers that just a few years before, there were no Christians in the city of Colossae. There was nobody in the city of Colossae who had ever heard the good news of Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection. Everyone in the city was lost and bound to empty, idolatrous religion. And a man, a disciple of his named Epaphras, who we're going to look at in just a few minutes went back to his hometown of Colossae and began to share the gospel. And as a result, many people believed and were saved. The majority of the city of Colossae was likely still lost and without Christ. Colossae was a, a large city, and as far as we know, there was one small 
church outpost there. But here is Paul expressing gratitude that there is a Christian outpost of believers in the middle of a city of spiritual darkness. And as Paul thinks about the massive spiritual changes that have taken place in the lives of these people over such a short period of time, his natural response is one of gratitude. He says, thank you, God, for what you are doing in Colossae. And that's important for us to remember that when we pray, we need to be thinking about ways to be grateful and to express thanksgiving to God for the things that we see him doing, for the evidences of life change that we see around us. You see, there's a type of prayer for others that is grounded in a deep burden for them. This is when we oftentimes in the church will say, what can we pray for today? And, and, and overwhelmingly, 80% of the time when we say, what, who can we pray for today or what can we pray for? It's usually prayers for someone who is ill, sick, facing impending surgery, recovering from surgery. But oftentimes we will pray for people's salvation or we will pray for someone who's lost a job that that God will meet their financial needs. And there is a type of prayer for others that is grounded in a deep personal burden that we feel for them. And then there is a type of prayer for others that is grounded in deep gratitude for what God has done and is doing in them. When you look at your life, when you look at your family, when you look at your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, your brothers and sisters in Christ, do you ever go to the Lord and say, God, I thank you for the good things that I see that are happening in the lives of these people, these these evidences of life change that I see happening. We must regularly remember the transformative power of the gospel is on display in our church and around our community all the time. And we need to regularly celebrate life change and express joyful gratitude when we see people who were once living separate from God begin to demonstrate hope in Jesus Christ. Somebody told me a long time ago, what gets celebrated gets repeated. And we need to remember that when it comes to the church that we need to celebrate life change because when we celebrate life change as believers in Jesus Christ, then we begin to look for life change in others and we begin to be agents of life change in other people's lives. Paul is specifically grateful for three things he hears about the believers in Colossae. He's grateful for their faith in Christ Jesus, the love that they have for all the saints or the brothers and sisters in Christ, and the hope laid up for them in heaven. These three things, faith, hope, and love, are the trinity of gospel affections. Paul writes about them in in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. We see Paul expressing in almost every prayer some word about people's personal faith in Christ, about their love that they have for other Christians, and for the hope that they have in heaven. I spent three years of my life in South Louisiana while I was in seminary. And I wasn't just in the city of New Orleans, but for the majority of the time that I lived there, I lived in the heart of Cajun country in a little town that is located basically between Baton Rouge and Lafayette. It's not Lafayette, it's Lafayette in Louisiana, okay? And I lived in a little town on the Atchafalaya River Basin there in in that area among, among some of the most Cajun people that you will ever meet. And when I went to South Louisiana, I think I weighed about 175 pounds. And when I left South Louisiana, I weighed over 200. And one of the reasons for that is that because in South Louisiana, they know how to cook. And I developed a great appreciation for Cajun cuisine when I'm down there. 
And there's, there's, there's something that's distinctive about Cajun cuisine, and that is that almost every Cajun dish starts with three ingredients. Did you know that? Bell pepper, onions, and celery. Just about every single dish that Cajuns make start with bell pepper, onions, and celery. And they call it the trinity of Creole cooking. That all three of those elements are, are, are present in just about every authentic Cajun dish. In the same way, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers begins with the trinity of gospel affections, faith, hope, and love. <coughs> As Paul is expressing gratitude to God, he is grateful for the very evident display of the transformative power of the gospel in the lives of the Christians in the city of Colossae. And specifically, he mentions that the Colossians are living with an eternal sense of hope, a hope that is laid up for them in heaven. The Christians in Colossae lived with a profound sense of hope that gave them both a deep personal faith in Jesus Christ and a visible love that was visible to one another. And it's important for us to remember the, the power of hope because we live in a world that is starving to experience hope. If one thing has become profoundly evident in the last decade of our lives, it is that the foundations of hope in our society have evaporated. We have learned that we cannot hope any longer in political leaders or governmental policies to save us. We cannot hope in economic prosperity and financial security to keep us secure. And we cannot hope in human courts to lead us. Our world is filled with people who are starving for hope. And Paul says that he is grateful for the believers because they are living with a sense of hope. But it's not just a present hope, it's a future hope. And in your notes I wrote this statement that our hope of present salvation in this world is grounded in the hope of future glory. It's the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. That's, it's a hope of something that we haven't grasped onto yet. That's why it's hope. It's why we live with a sense of expectation that something is beyond this broken world and this broken life that is better than what we are experiencing now. The Christians in Colossae lived with tangible hope in a difficult situation because their hope in this present life was grounded in future glory. They lived with a hope that transcended this world because their hope was not in this world. Their hope was in Christ. We talked about this when we looked at 1 Peter earlier this year, that we are to be kingdom exiles who live with hope. So do you live with a sense of hope? When people encounter you, do they leave more hopeful than when they came? If so, then what is the basis for that hope? Is it just the power of positive thinking and that people are good and eventually things will get better? Because that's a shaky foundation. Or do you live with a sense of hope of future glory that is grounded in Jesus Christ? We see the transformative power of gospel hope, but secondly, we see the beautiful harvest of gospel belief. The beautiful harvest of gospel belief. Beginning in the second part of verse 5, he says where this hope came from. He says, of this, the hope, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. 
Paul gives the foundation for our future hope when he says that that future hope is grounded in the Word of God, the Gospel. The Gospel is good news and the Gospel is real hope. And this is critically important for us to understand because there is no real hope in this world apart from the Gospel of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, one of the presidential candidates ran on a platform of hope and change. And eventually there was an iconic poster developed with this candidate's face and the word hope written underneath it. And while his election brought temporal hope to many people, that hope didn't last and it didn't transcend and permeate into all of society. It was a hope, but it was a hope that was temporary because no man other than Jesus Christ can bring true and lasting hope. The hope of mankind does not reside in the White House. The hope of mankind resides on a great great white throne. And one day he is returning to bring to fulfillment all of the hope of the gospel that he has given us. Paul continues his thanksgiving in verse 6 by describing for us the bountiful harvest that comes in the life of Christians because of their belief in the gospel. And it helps us to understand this truth that we say often around here, and that is when the gospel is rightly believed and held, it always brings a harvest of spiritual fruit. Whenever and wherever the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is rightly believed, and whenever believers hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the inevitable result is a harvest of spiritual fruit in their lives. Paul tells the Christians in Colossae that they have this faith in Christ and this love for one another and this eternal hope because someone brought them what he calls the word of truth or the gospel. And he says right after that that this same gospel in verse 6 is not only come to them but that it is going out into all the world. The gospel was advancing And people were beginning to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They were beginning to get a sense of hope in the midst of hopelessness. Paul's entire mission in life was to take the gospel throughout the Roman world to places where Christ was not known. In Romans 15, Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. At the time that Paul writes this letter, he is in a Roman prison because of his faithfulness in taking the gospel throughout Asia Minor and Macedonia to all people, Jews and Gentiles. And so we see the the nature of the gospel is to advance and to bring hope to all people. But we need to see something else important in verse 6, and that is the progression that takes place in the life of someone where spiritual fruit develops. Paul says in in the end of verse 6, he says that not only is the gospel bearing fruit and increasing, but he says, it does so among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. That's a very important statement that Paul makes there. Paul says there's a progression of the gospel, and that is that we hear the gospel, we hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and then we begin to come to an understanding of what the gospel is saying, what it says about us, what it says about our desperate situation, what it says about Christ, 
what it says about what Christ has done for us. And as a result of hearing the gospel and understanding the implications of the grace of God in truth, we believe the gospel. And as we hear and understand and believe, then it's the nature of the gospel to bear spiritual fruit in us. Both of these, hearing and understanding, are necessary. Too often in the church, we settle for hearing the gospel, but we don't work hard to make sure that people understand the gospel as well. Too often, the evangelical church has settled for a public profession of faith that was grounded in hearing the gospel, but then did little to make sure that that new believer actually understood the good news and that they grounded their lives on it every day. And it's important for us to remember in the church that We are not seeking converts to the Christian faith. We are seeking disciples of Jesus Christ. And in order to develop disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to make sure that people not only hear the good news of the gospel, but that they understand it. We need to help them understand how it applies to their life and how it points out their sin and how it brings them hope in the present. Paul reminds us of this truth, that it's the nature of the gospel to bring salvation and spiritual fruit in the lives of others wherever it goes. Paul says the gospel is going out into the whole world. It is bearing fruit. It is increasing. It is a bountiful harvest of gospel belief. The gospel rightly believed and held will always bring spiritual fruit. Fifteen years ago, most of the country of northern Uganda was a place of hopelessness and desperation. The country was recovering at that time from a 20-year internal war. Many citizens of northern Uganda had seen their villages destroyed, their family members killed, and their children captured to be soldiers or slaves. The people themselves were grounded in centuries of false religion called animism. At that time, a pastor in central Alabama and a few other believers dared to believe in the transforming power of the gospel. They took a trip to northern Uganda and bought some land and established a ministry called Abana's Hope. Now, 15 years later, there is a vibrant, flourishing Christian community standing where death and destruction once reigned. There are two vibrant gospel-preaching churches a refuge center for abandoned women, a Christian school, and a training center for pastors. And this is because it's the nature of the gospel, rightly held, rightly believed, and rightly proclaimed, that when the gospel does those things, it bears fruit and increases wherever it goes. My hope and prayer for Central Park Baptist Church is that we will be a people who rightly believe and hold the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we expect to see a bountiful harvest of spiritual fruit in our church and in our city. But thirdly, we see the faithful demonstration of gospel multiplication. Not only do we see the transformative power of gospel hope and the, and the bountiful harvest that comes because of right belief in the gospel, but in the latter part of verse 7 and 8, we see... Epaphras is a faithful demonstration of disciple-making and gospel multiplication. Verse 7 says, Just as you learned it, that's the gospel, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The reason why there was gospel hope and gospel fruit in the lives of the believers in Colossae 
was because they had been faithfully taught the gospel by Epaphras. Do you remember what we said about Epaphras last week? Maybe you weren't here. Epaphras' name is only mentioned three times in the Bible, twice in Colossians and once in the letter of Philemon, which is a sister letter of Colossians that was written to a member of the church there. Epaphras doesn't get the, the headlines or the attention of other disciples like Apollos and Timothy and Titus. But he is a great example of a disciple who made it his personal mission in life to make other disciples of Jesus Christ. Piercing together the New Testament evidence, scholars believe that Epaphras was a native of Colossae who spent some time in the city of Ephesus for some reason. Maybe he went there to get a job. Maybe he went there for some other reason. But while he was there, he likely heard the gospel proclaimed from the Apostle Paul under his preaching. He became a believer and he spent a considerable amount of time in the city of Ephesus under the teaching of Paul. Then after a period of time, Epaphras returned to his hometown of Colossae and began to share the gospel there in the city with people that he knew. Not only that, but he began to share the gospel in neighboring cities like Laodicea and Hierapolis. Eventually, there were enough new converts or believers to start a church. At the end of Colossians, we hear some of them by name, names like Philemon and Nympha and Archippus. These were people who heard the gospel under the proclamation of Epaphras and believed enough so that there was enough to form a local congregation, a local body of believers that met there in the city. I love the story of this guy named Epaphras because he reminds us that he was brave enough to believe that the gospel was true and that Jesus commands us in the Great Commission to take the gospel to all people, and those were his marching orders in life. He believed that his purpose in life was to be a disciple who made other disciples of Jesus wherever he went. We have no record of Epaphras ever co-authoring one of Paul's letters. We have no record of of Epaphras ever being referred to as an elder or a pastor. As far as we know, all we know is that he was listed as a servant of Jesus Christ who believed that all people needed to hear the gospel. And one of the fruits of the gospel is gospel multiplication. Epaphras stands for us as an example of a regular Christian who is a faithful demonstration of gospel multiplication. Paul says that the reason why the believers lived with a hope laid up for them in heaven and why they demonstrated the gospel fruit that was bearing fruit and increasing was because they learned it from Epaphras, their beloved fellow servant. It reminds me of this statement, and that is this, that the gospel was never designed to end with me. It's important for us to understand this, that the the Bible, the New Testament, teaches us over and over and over again that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ was never intended to stop With you. God never intended for you to be a cul de sac of spiritual truth. He designed you to be a highway of gospel advancement. The gospel is not just the good news about your personal salvation, it's the good news for all people of their salvation, and you have been commissioned by your Lord and Master to make sure that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, continues beyond you. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to share good news with other people? You don't have to train people to share good news. It just comes out naturally. 
A few weeks ago, my son Andrew's been in basic training with the Navy. It's been a pretty interesting time because he had to go into two weeks of quarantine and then start basic training, got really close to the end. Somebody got COVID. They all went back into quarantine for two weeks. We couldn't go up there and watch his graduation. Uh, we couldn't see anything in person. Our, our contact with him was, was very limited. But we finally got the good news from him with a phone call that he had completed all of his requirements and that he was about to be graduating. And we were able to post on Facebook a picture of him and tell everyone the good news that our son Andrew had graduated from basic training. My parents took pictures of Drew and posted it on their Facebook and shared it with their friends. And we had hundreds of comments from people saying, congratulations, proud of Drew. You know what? Nobody had to sit down with me and say, you know, that's a really good story. You ought to share that with other people, right? Nobody had to tell me that I needed to share that. It was natural for me to share that good news. When, when the four of my children were born, I didn't just go, well, isn't that great? All right, what are we going to do now? Let's find some diapers and some formula. No, I was calling my mother, my, my father. I was calling other people. We were letting people in our church know that all of them had been safely delivered. It's not hard to share good news. People love to share good news stories because people are starving for hope in our world. And it's why we share birth announcements with others. And it's why we repeat the story of cancer survivors who go into remission. So may we remember this truth, that the gospel was never designed to end with me. If the gospel is the good news of salvation for everyone who believes, then why would you allow the gospel to stop with you? Don't become a Christian cul-de-sac but be a disciple-making highway of hope for others in this world. As we ground our lives on the truth of Jesus Christ, may we, like the believers in Colossae, become vessels of the transformative power of gospel hope, the beautiful harvest of gospel belief, and a faithful demonstration of gospel multiplication. Would you pray with me? Before we close out this morning, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We're not able to offer a public invitation as we would normally be able to do in these, these days. But we want to offer you an opportunity to believe and to trust in the hope of the gospel. Do, do you live your life with a sense of eternal hope? Do you have a living hope in your life? Or do you just wake up every day trying your best to survive and get by and you lost hope a long time ago? You see... Whenever we trust in the good news of Jesus Christ, it's the nature of that good news to give us hope. Many people in our world, many people in our neighborhoods, many people in our city are living without that hope. Perhaps that's you today. Perhaps you came in here and, and you've been going to church all of your life, but you've never really had an eternal living hope. Today, if you need to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we want to give you the opportunity to hear Believe that good news. It's not just enough to hear it. You need to understand it and you need to believe it. You need to trust it. We want to give you an opportunity to do that. So before you leave, if you need to talk to somebody about the Lord Jesus, I invite you to come see me or one of our staff members. We'll be glad to share the good news of Christ with you. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then are you living with that sense of eternal hope? Are you a, are you a highway of 
gospel hope in other people's lives? Or have you become a cul-de-sac that has never really advanced the gospel beyond you? May we all be men and women like Epaphras who dare to believe that people can be saved by the power of the gospel and live our lives in such a way. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for worship this morning. I thank you for the the powerful story of the believers in Colossae and the incredible things that you were doing in their lives because they had come to believe the hope of the gospel. Father, I know that many people in in this place today have trusted in you many, many years ago. They've been They've been rightly related to you and they've been walking with you for many, many years. But God, may we live our lives as, as agents and ambassadors of the gospel to the people around us. May we live with that faith, that visible faith in Christ Jesus, that, that love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And may we live with that eternal hope laid up for us in heaven. And Father, if anyone is here today and they need to trust you as Savior, God, would you speak to them? Would you... Reveal that to them. Would you give them um, the courage to respond today to the gospel? We thank you for all of these things and your goodness to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.